often full of questions. If you're older, maybe you have had life experiences that were sad or surprising or upsetting. Why did I have to leave, lose my job and then sink in depression? Or why did I have this accident and now physically struggle? Or why did this beloved, this beloved child of us get off the rails? And these questions are not there only at the personal level, but they're also there at the national level. Why does so much injustice go unpunished? Or international, why are the, war, the warlords and the Mugabis of this world allowed to cause untold misery? Or maybe you are young and you look afresh at the things that your parents took for granted or accepted as the way things are, and you are asking why. Homelessness, climate change, whatever cause that grips you. Can you ask God these questions? Can you ask God, why is it like this? Or is it then the pot questioning the potter, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 9, verse 21? Tonight we will see what we can learn from the prophet Habakkuk. Now, about the prophet Habakkuk, really nothing is known, very little in any case. He's only mentioned in his own prophecy in chapter 1, verse 1, and in chapter 3, verse 1. So he's only mentioned in the Bible, and sometimes we can't even find him in the Bible. Very good thing there are page numbers, because otherwise we would have been finding him. His name is not particularly meaningful either. The best the commentators can up with, come, come up with is that it is linked to a Mesopotamian garden plant, a particular meaning. And if it conveys anything, it is probably that he lived in a time where there was heavy Assyrian influence. And that probably could fit. Because it's likely that Habakkuk was born under King Manasseh. And Manasseh was the worst king that Israel ever had. He was given over to and subject to the Assyrians. And if that's true, the prophecies probably date from the period 610 to 605 before Christ. And that actually spans the time shortly before and shortly after the arrival of the Babylonians, very close to the exile and the destruction of the temple. And that would make Habakkuk a contemporary of Jeremiah and his lamentations. So not a particularly cheerful time. Now Habakkuk's prophecy is very unusual in the Old Testament. It's called a burden. And it consists actually of three parts. There is a first question and a first answer. And then there is a second question and a second answer. And then thirdly there is a song with a conclusion or his response. And that's why we had to read it all, to make sure that we get the picture. So his prophecy is in a very unusual form. It is a dialogue between God and the prophet with us, and the Israelites, of course, at the time, as it were, listening in. And as we go through the prophecy of Habakkuk, we will listen to the dialogue. 
and we will try to learn a lesson. And that is the message for tonight. Let us learn the lesson from Habakkuk's struggle. Let us learn the lesson from Habakkuk's struggle. And we know three things. The first one is, you can ask the Lord any question. If, too, you wait obediently for the answer, then, three, joy will be the end. So let us learn the lesson from Habakkuk's struggle. And we know three things. In the first place, you can ask the Lord any question. If, too, you wait obediently for the answer. And then, three, joy will be the end. So in the first place, then, let us learn the lesson from Habakkuk's struggle that is in the first instance, you can ask the Lord any question. You see, if you read through the prophecy of Habakkuk, you can see that he genuinely struggled. And it is reflected in powerful, poetic language. And he struggled with that age-old question, why does the Lord allow evil in whatever shape it appears in our life? Why does he allow evil to prevail? And why is it like he doesn't respond to prayer? Maybe the upper of the state treats you unjustly, and we are powerless. Or the boss is unfair, and there is nothing we can change. Or tragedy hits our family, and there is nothing you can do. Why? Well, Habakkuk's first question, verses 2 to 4. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen, or cry out violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds, and therefore the law is paralyzed, and justice never prevails, and the wicked hem in the righteous, so that justice is perverted. You see, Habakkuk probably lived under Manasseh, about whom the scripture says, Surely, at the command of the Lord, this, that is the exile, came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also because of all the innocent blood that he had shed, for he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, which the Lord would not pardon. And then after Manasseh for a while, there was a righteous king, Josiah, but he couldn't stem the tide of Israel's idolatry anymore. And he then in turn was followed by Jehoiakim. And about this Jehoiakim, the book of Chronicles records that he did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And specifically mentioned in 2 Chronicles 36, he did detestable things. Also the prophet Jeremiah from that same time mentions this king. And he says, Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his chambers by injustice, who uses his neighbor's service without wages and gives him nothing for his work. And as the king, so of course were his courtiers. The behavior was widespread in the ruling classes. For the land, Jeremiah says, is full of adulterers, and for because, for because of a curse the land mourns. The pleasant places of the wilderness are dried up, their course of life is evil, and their might is not right. 
And finally, this Jehoiakim was stupid enough to try and switch alliance and rebel against Babylon, and he was taken prisoner, only to be followed by another bad king. So Habakkuk, you can see, lived in a time of an incompetent and rapacious and a godless ruling class, during which evil and injustice prevailed in Judah, in the land which had, which had God's word. The land where the law of the exemplar king in Deuteronomy 17 was to prevail, and where the king was to rule, trusting in God and leading his people in obedience to God's law. And in a way, while our society still has a veneer of civilization and a legal system, if you look underneath at times, you may well wonder. Thousands of innocent children are killed with abortion, subsidized and promoted. The legal system has become lax on euthanasia. Millions of pounds are being spent on art and TV performances and programs which celebrate sin and are blasphemous. And the Christian ethos, which was reflected in marriage laws and sending trading prohibitions, is ridiculed, undermined, and terminated. And the freedom of religion is threatened by the taboos and the political correctness of the chattering classes. And these ruling classes contain many who draw sound salaries and build pleasant pensions and along the way dip into every expense account they can find. Not much changes really in the world. And in many other places of the world, it's actually worse with their corrupt and cruel warlords. Evil is there on a macro level, and it takes, as we all know, also many shapes in our personal lives at the micro level. So the questions remain very similar. Why does evil continue to prevail? And our text tells us that things are getting worse for Habakkuk. Because the Babylonians replace the rotten internal Judean rule. And their character and behavior is powerfully and graphically described in the verses 6 to 11 and 14 to 17. Where we read, I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own, and so on. And then in verse 14, he describes how they are behaving. You have made man, these are the conquered people, like fish in the sea, like sea creatures that have no ruler. And the wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks and catches them in his net, and so on. So what was happening is that the local yokels in Judah were bad, but these Babylonians, they were infinitely worse. And Habakkuk's question, therefore, becomes... I guess, in a way, even more despondent and more penetrating as we can read in verse 13. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why, then, do you tolerate the treacherous? And why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? It's a very strong and direct question. And yet God does not reproach Habakkuk for asking these questions. Because he recognizes the struggle of his servant, and he does provide an answer. The first answer comes in verse 5. Look at the nations and watch, and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that, we, that you would not believe even if you were told. 
I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people. <coughs> and what we see here is in the first place that God does respond. Habakkuk had asked God, why are you silent? But God is not silent, and he gives him an answer. And Habakkuk had struggled with evil that was prevailing, but God tells him that the end for these people is coming. So God responds. The other thing you see is that God is at work, even if it wasn't evident to Habakkuk and may not be to us. You see, the situation was that the Assyrians, who lived in what today is northern Iraq, loomed large over Judah. Judah were vassals to the Assyrians, who didn't treat them very well at all. But behind the Assyrians, there were the Babylonians, who lived at the time in what today is southern Iraq, and they also, at the outset, were subject to the Assyrians. And for Israel, the Babylonians were initially, I guess, beyond their horizon, because Assyria filled that horizon. But God is already at work here. Because what's happening is that the Babylonians are revolting and they conquer Assyria, Asher in 614 and Nineveh in 612. And then they descend on Assyria's former colonies, including Judah. So the first stirrings of that development are already taking place, although Habakkuk may not yet have realized what was happening. God was already at work through the Babylonians who were on their way. But of course, then you also realize in the first place, in the third place, that God's response may be different from what we had expected or desired. Because Habakkuk, no doubt, hoped for judgment on the leadership in Judah, and then better leaders and better times. But the Lord warns him, the solution, the answer I am bringing is different from what you may have had in mind. The Babylonians will be, says the Lord to him, a terrible people. Because in God's grand scheme, tranquility was not yet to return to Israel. But first there had to be the exile and the warning and the cleansing that that brought to Israel. And because of that development, <coughs> there is a second question. Because as you can read in the prophecy, and as is easy to imagine, Habakkuk is stunned by what happens. The Babylonians have come, and they punished the Judean ruling classes all right, but otherwise they're even worse. The Babylonians are violent, fierce, and fearless, you can read in these verses. Compared to them, the previous bunch of crooked leaders looks like hapless fish caught in the net of a cruel fisherman who gleefully rapes and rips through the conquered people. That's what we read in the verses 14 to 17. And of course, Habakkuk is struggling again. And he asks again, why, God? Why? And God again gives him an answer. There is no rebuke in the response to the second question, but there is again an answer. So we learned the first lesson from Habakkuk's struggle, that we can ask the Lord the questions that we are struggling with. But, and that is the second lesson, 
we need to do so waiting obediently for his answer. Because we should note very carefully Habakkuk's attitude while approaching God. You see, we all know there are many people in the world <coughs> who are asking God questions, but they, deem, they seem to get no answer. Why? Why do they get no answer? Some of them are very earnest, full of fierce compassion with the victims of evil in this world. Or they are really upset about what is happening to them or their friends or their relatives. So why not? Well, whether you get an answer depends on with what attitude you ask the question. Because the Lord requires an obedient and open mind. You see, some people are not interested in an answer, only in kicking. It's like people can ask us questions, not for the answer, but to be nasty. And if they persist, we say, well, if you just want to kick, you know, you go and kick some wall. I'm not going to bother with, an ant with answering you anymore. And other people are calling God to account. They say, God, the world is full of evil, and I think it's very wrong. And if you are indeed almighty, come before me and give an account of yourself. Why is there evil in the world? Why haven't you done anything about it? But now, we are in the pot and the potter's territory. And yet other people, they're only checking the correctness of God's answer. They're not out to learn, but to check. They already know what they think the answer is. God is to change the world, or the church, or their life, in the manner they think it should be organized. It's like they are the quiz master. If God comes up with the wrong answer, there goes the bell, and he's out. There is an event in their life, and now they can't believe anymore. Or God ordains things to happen in the church that they did not want, and they look around in the church and say, we're out of here. We saw an example of that in our first New Testament reading in Mark 11. Where we read then they, that's the Lord Jesus and the disciples, came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? That was the cleansing of the temple. And who gave you authority to do these things? Well, the priests weren't really interested in the answer. Because they thought they already knew what the answer was. The authority to rule the temple was theirs. Not Jesus. And they had no interest in getting to know Jesus or who he was or who sent him, with for what reason and why he had this authority. And the counter question that the Lord Jesus asks them makes that clear. Because what you see in Mark here is not just a clever debating technique, like you can see from the politicians on the telly. You know, they're faced with a difficult question and they say, good question, let me ask you a question. Or they say, well, that's a fair question, and let me give you my answer. And then they give you some pre-cooked spinning sentence, whether it has anything to do with the question or not. No. Jesus points out that they had already heard the answer to that question, 
because John the Baptist had told him. Because we read in John, the next day John, as John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. And I have seen and testified, says John the Baptist, that this is the Son of God. And the priest had refused to listen. So their question was antagonistic and calling Jesus God to account. And the priests, as we read, got no answer. And likewise, for many people, the heavens are silent. But Habakkuk's attitude is different. We see it most clearly in his second question, verse 13a, God, you are pure. How can you allow this? And in his question, he acknowledges and professes God's moral character, his holiness, his pureness, and his goodness. And with Habakkuk, there is no calling to account or checking up but reverence for God, and a genuine struggle and desire to understand. And then we should also note he waits in obedience. Chapter 2, verse 1. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he, God, will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. On the wall, as it were, waiting for and looking for the messenger that brings the answer or the instruction from afar. And Habakkuk poetically recognizes that he has to wait, that he may have to wait long for an answer, and he also recognized that the answer may come from beyond his horizon. And then what we learn from the second answer is given to us in chapter 2, verse 2. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. And then there is the, the vision in verse 4. See he, the wicked one, is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous will live by his faith. And then verse 5 goes on to describe the fate of the wicked. And there are a couple of things that are worthwhile noting here. First, God's answer is certain. Habakkuk is told to write it down on a tablet. It's now cast in stone. And a messenger is to run with it. He is to advertise it, to proclaim it, to make it public. Verse 2b is not easy to translate, but the upshot is, it is to be made known widely, for it is certain. And the other thing we, shan, we can learn here is that God's time is not man's time. Habakkuk's question was, how long? And the Lord understands his urgency, and he tells him, though it, tarries, though it remains outstanding, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. God in his plan has an appointed time. And when that time has come, he will act and not a moment later. Coming it comes. 
an Hebrew expression for it will certainly come. But Habakkuk, what is he to do in the meantime? How is he to live in view of the coming judgment, waiting for God's action? Well, the essence of God's answer to this question is the vision given in verse 4. And the vision is a judgment personified of a verdict on the wicked on the one hand and salvation for the just on the other. The wicked, the Babylonians here, but to be understood also in general, puffed up and not upright is his soul in him. And what will happen to him is described from verse 5 onwards. He is full of himself, says our text, arrogant, greedy, never satisfied, and heading for the woes. But the righteous, on the other hand, through steadfast trust and faith, he shall live. They are to live trusting in God, in his coming in righteousness, in him bringing redemption. That is the third element in God's answer through that vision. So the third point is, in this answer, is that faithfulness is key to the righteous. But the, the just shall live by faith. Habakkuk is to persevere in faith. And our text in the verses 3 to 4 is alluded to again in the letter to the Hebrews, where we read the same lesson. Therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you need you have to need endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise for yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. And also the Hebrews, as are we, are to persevere in faith. In the oppression by the Babylonians for Habakkuk, the unknown oppression to the recipients of the letter to the Hebrews and in our time, our questions, we are to persist in faith, in the knowledge that God will come with judgment and redemption, that he will come to right the wrongs. And so we have moved from the first two lessons, that you can ask any question if you wait in obedience for the answer. We are moving to the third lesson, that joy will be the end. The Hebrews, we read, had to persevere. And Habakkuk's people had to wait. But judgment will come and evil will be punished. It will not wait any longer than is necessary. And so it does in Habakkuk. The verdict for the wicked is elaborated in the fivefold woe. Now, the utterance of a woe is a technique that the prophets used to issue words of solemn warning. It was originally a funeral cry. Mr. Smith had died, they would cry, woe, Mr. Smith. Alas, and indeed, alas, for the world would go on, his children would grow up, his land would be plowed, the seasons would continue, but the dead man would have neither any part of it nor any knowledge of it. And so it was with the targets of the prophetic woes. Death comes at the end. For sake's time, we cannot go into the detail, but if you read the fivefold woe, they tell us that Babylon's doom, it loomed already large over the Babylonians. It would take several decades for the Babylonians to be beaten, 
and for Israel to be free to return. But the redemption did come, amazingly as predicted by Isaiah 200 years before the event. Cyrus came. Habakkuk did not live to see it. But he trusted the Lord and was consoled. And as a poetic witness to that trust and that consolation, he left us this psalm in chapter 3. Because a psalm it is, as you can see from the beginning, where a musical indication is given, and at the end, for the director of music on my stringed instruments. And in that psalm, he reflects upon the questions and the answers, and on the vision he received, and the lesson he learned. And in Habakkuk 3, verse 2, he gives us the structure of his psalm. He says, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. And then the second part, renew them in our day, in our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. The vision in, in the verses 2, in chapter 2, the verses 3 to 4, told him that God would come to judge and to save. And first, here in the psalm, he remembers that that is what God had done in the past. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. And fear is he not being afraid, but I stand in awe. He remembers how God in the past had saved Israel. And in verses 3 to 15, there are many poetic allusions to God's acts. There is no time to elaborate, but there are references to the Exodus, to the Sinai, to the conquest of Canaan, to Mount Sinai, the Nile, the Red Sea, Gibeah, where the time stood still, and so on. If you read through the footnotes of your study Bible, you will find it. God, he learned, he recognizes, he remembers, is almighty and all-powerful, and he had helped his children in the past. But then secondly, there is, in the second part of that verse 2, in this introduction, the prayer also to be with people in this day and age. So he looked back, and now he's looking forward. In the midst of years, says the new King James, revive, preserve it. In the midst of years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. It, in these sentences, probably refers to God's work. And the midst of time, as the New King James says, that is how it felt probably to Habakkuk. Because the days of God's acting in the past were long gone. And the days of the vision for Habakkuk, the judgment of Babylon, felt like they were far off. And that is how it may feel today. Because the Lord Jesus came already more than 2,000 years ago. And his return, who knows how long that will be. But his prayer is that in the dreary midst of time, God will renew again his mighty deeds and again act in power so that his people may again experience God's work, his care, his power, and his justice. And that second element he spells out from 16 onwards. He resumes again with, I heard, like in verse 2. What did he hear? Well, the deeds of old and the vision the promise of God's coming. And the thought of what he heard affects him physically. His heart pounds and he feels shaky. But also, he has gained comfort 
confidence and understanding. Not necessarily factual knowledge. We know that Habakkuk had experienced answer one, the fall of Jerusalem. But he did not know, never knew, the timing and the details of answer to the fall of Babylon. But looking at God's deed in the past and listening to God's assurance for the future, he can say, I will wait patiently for the day. See, the going may be tough, and it remained tough for Habakkuk, as we can read in verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit beyond the vines, the the produce of the olive fails and fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herds in the stalls. You see, that is what Habakkuk experienced in his day. No peace, no security, no earthly well-being. But he knows that the Lord is with him. And he will go through life, he says, sure-footed. Verse 18. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He makes me tread on my high places. So with joy, it ends. And in the prophecy of Habakkuk, joy is his last and final word. So briefly then, and in closing. Life throws up many questions. And what happens appears to us often incomprehensible. And we often wonder why. Does God respond? Does God control evil? And if that happens to you, then learn the lesson of Habakkuk's struggle. One, that you can ask the Lord any question. If two, you wait obediently for the answer. Then three, joy will be the end. It is, as we were singing in the psalm, throughout the watches of the night, my songs I call to mind. I ponder deeply while my heart an answer tried to find. Forever will the Lord reject and never show his grace as he withdrawn his steadfast love and turned from me his face. Then, ten, then to my heart there came this thought, on this I will rely, the years of the right hand of power of him who is most high. I will recall the Lord's great deeds, like Habakkuk was doing, your words of long ago. I'll meditate on all your acts, your mighty deeds, I'll show. And then looking forward, you have redeemed your people, Lord, with your almighty arm. And Jacob and Joseph, children and you, delivered from all harm. Amen. Let us pray.